If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Coming up on the Mark Divine Show. It's like the emperor's new clothes. It's like, gosh, the emperor looks naked, but everybody else is acting as if he's not naked. So maybe I'm a fool. And that's why it's so important now to like come out, whether it's psychedelics or paranormal experiences or in the health arena, childbirth, like all of the whistleblowers, all of the dissidents, like this is the time to be brave. Hi, this is Mark Devine, and this is The Mark Devine Show. On this show, I explore what it means to be fearless through the lens of the world's most inspirational, compassionate, and resilient leaders. My guests include notable folks from all walks of life, to include motivational scientists, nutrition experts, peace crusaders, philosophers, and counterculture authors like my guest today, Charles Eisenstein. Charles Eisenstein is an author, speaker, counterculture philosopher, or he calls himself dissident, and the author of several books. His newest book, The Coronation, will be released in July, and we speak about that on this podcast, or we will speak about that in this podcast. I met Charles about eight years ago when I read his book, Sacred Economics and a More Beautiful World, and we had an incredibly compelling conversation on an early version of this show, and I'm super excited to talk to him today. Charles, thanks for joining. What inspired you to become a writer and a philosopher uh, to do what you're doing right now? I'll say that I never aspired to be a writer. Or a philosopher. I don't think that what the need, the world needs the most right now is more people coming up with ideas and talking about them. But through my journey, like I came to see some things in a way that, that nobody else was talking about. I had pretty much no choice but to write about them. Why do you think that was? To make a long story short, I went through a process of alienation from the normality that our society narrates to us that our society has established and offers us the normality of, it could be scientific reality, it could be economic reality, it could be medical reality, the capacities of the human body, the capacities of the human mind, the way the world is and should be. I had experiences that punctured that bubble of normality or reality. Metaphysical experiences? I mean, in some cases, yeah. In some cases, more mystical, you know. In other cases, like very, very fleshly. Like, for example, I used to live in Taiwan in my early 20s. I was a refugee from academia. I, you know, had been on a success trajectory, let's say. On one level, I just couldn't take it. I just couldn't handle it. I couldn't make myself do the things that one is expected to do to be an upstanding member of society. So anyway, there I was in a foreign culture, and I began to experience things that my received version of reality denied as even being possible. For example, I had a severe ankle injury that was similar to one I had running cross-country in college. Like It was put me on crutches for six weeks. The bartender where I was working took me to, he's like, oh yeah, I'll take you to a doctor. It looks really bad, all swollen and inflamed. He takes me to this what he calls a doctor, but it's actually like this one room cement floored clinic (laughs) with no separate waiting room. And it's like a traditional Chinese 
doctor and he's smoking a cigarette. Like mm-hmm. this was like not anything that was on my radar screen, but this severe injury, he fixed it in very agonizing fashion by digging his thumbs into it and pulling and yanking and, and putting an herbal paste on it. But it was better the next day. And I was like, hold on, that is not possible. Right. The Western guy would have cut it open and, you know, laid you out for months. He would have given me ibuprofen and put me on crutches, put a cast on it and said, wait six weeks. And so like, I'm like, okay, the pinnacle of medical science does not, is not even able to do what this unschooled cigarette smoking unschooled guy in a cave, basically. Right. And, you know, then I came into contact with Qigong, you know, and various Taoist practices. And yeah, so I was like, okay, what happens if I really take in this one data point that doesn't fit the matrix? Everything ripples from there, right? Yeah. That's one of the experiences. Like there was a series of experiences like that. And I could tell a lot more of the story, but almost everybody probably listening to this has had experiences, whether like mystical experiences, experiences of synchronicity, paranormal experiences, healing experiences, that if you really take them in, you have to question everything. I love that as a starting point. And most do not in an entire scientific community, you know, has an un- like an uncomfortable shrug around those things. Yeah. They just put them in some other category. It's some category that's just like, if it's not observable, explainable, then it's, it's not real. They don't say that it didn't happen. They just say it's just an anomaly of the subjective experience and blah, blah, blah. But we do that too. I mean, not even, you know, scientists, like most people do that to preserve reality. Right. Preserve the framework or the structure, the cognitive structure of what we call real. And I look at it as something a little bit more, more involved with penetrating the, what's really real with a capital R versus what we perceive to be real, right? Which is what's taught. This kind of thing though is happening to more and more people because not only does a larger reality beckon to us, but the existing reality is becoming more and more uncomfortable. It's just not working anymore for people. Even if you play by all the rules and build that CV and do everything you're told and go to the dentist every six months and get your prostate exam, you know, and do all the things you're supposed to do. Those are all very uncomfortable things, by the way. (laughs) The implicit promise is that if you do all those things, then you'll be happy. You'll be healthy. You'll be happy. There's the formula. And people who obey the formula nowadays, they're, they're running headlong into a sandstorm of confusion, like whether it's chronic health problems or dead end careers or just like generalized depression or divorce, you know, or their children have, you know, become suicidal or like normal life doesn't work anymore. Even in the business or organizational or even, you know, global cultural sense, it seems to be not working. Right. And so that's the push. There's a pull that takes the form of these extraordinary experiences that we have that say there is a bigger reality out there. And then there's the push. It's almost like a birth push where the the womb has become uncomfortable and it's expelling us. It's interesting. I'm curious if more people are experiencing this or it's just that because of the global interconnectedness and people's willingness now to talk about it because of conversations like this, we're just learning that more more people are willing to express it or they have a you know an avenue to express it. And that's a possibility. Or it's possible that, you know, consciousness is actually kind of accelerating in its journey toward more more wholeness. Yeah, I mean I'm not sure what your take on on it is, but you know, whether we're talking about like the breakdown of the political system, the venomous climate on social media, the what I consider to be a public health catastrophe, the economic situation, inflation, you know, I mean, just on so many levels, the 
world of normalcy is crumbling at the edges. And a lot of people cannot even make ends meet anymore. So yeah, I think it's an objective phenomenon. It is objective and we can only respond to it subjectively. And it's co-created as a result of our subjective minds. What we're seeing here is hundreds of years of negative thinking and disassociation from self and also probably a very deliberate attempt to insert institutions between individuals and God or between individuals and their autonomy. Right? And you see how all of our systems in the United States at least have been organized. It's like, oh yeah, you need this in between your health, right? Insurance and doctor. You need this in between your education. You need this in between, right? You for God, right? So it's religion. And the reality is the human being doesn't need any of that when they're in control of their mind and they're able to think clearly. I'm writing an article right now on uh, the title is something about transhumanism and the metaverse, which is a another example of what you're talking about, where even the capacity to experience life becomes dependent on this intermediary called technology, where dependency on technology extends all the way to the level of the immune system, of the physical body, which has already been happening for a long time. Like people are, most parts of this country anyway, are addicted to air conditioning. Like you become addicted to comfort and then the range of comfortable temperatures gets smaller and smaller. You lose the capacity to adapt, right? Right. Or you become addicted to the intense stimuli of the virtual world so that normal life seems boring and you feel actually discomfort if you're not receiving that intense stimuli. Or the interposition of technology in our communication and social reality where you can no longer even be social if you're not connected to the internet. Now, I'm exaggerating the case a little bit, but during COVID, it kind of did become like that. Like you were in many places on earth required to stay indoors. You had to have an official pass to emerge into the social world. So, you know, this trend that you're speaking of has really accelerated in the last few years, but it's not a new thing. And so I I really like to think about what the alternative is and what is the vision of humanity that underlies this movement toward more and more dependency. And as you were saying, also a surrender of sovereignty to the intermediaries. Because this has been going on for several thousand years. You know, when, when the ancient pharaohs were started to understand the power of imagery and controlling masses through imagery. And that's what media is doing now, you know? Yeah. And I'm actually rather wary of the conspiracy, the big C conspiracy theory. Yeah. Because it's like this simplification. Yep. It takes a, a complicated reality with many, many actors and many influences that are all interrelated, and it reduces it to a matter of good guys versus bad guys. It's a strong duality thinking, right? And you're right. Yeah. So it's way more complicated, and you can look at it much more probably clear-headed or with clear eyes from a more spiritual perspective even, I think, and you get the answers, right? And it's also a kind of a victim mentality. True that. It says that the source of my troubles is something outside of myself. There's a certain comfort in that, because you no longer have to take responsibility. Here we have decades-long deterioration in general levels of health. It's not caused by a virus or a bacteria. You know, autoimmunity is not caused by a pathogen. Allergies are not caused by a pathogen. Anxiety, depression, addiction. Caused by being out of balance, yeah. Right? There's nothing to fight. Now, all of a sudden, here comes a virus. And from the authorities down to the public, everyone's like, oh, good. Now we can do something about it. Because what do we know how to do? We know how to isolate. We know how to control. We know how to kill. So there was a comfort in the familiarity and in the 
illusion that this is something under our control. And so we projected everything onto this one thing. It's the same mindset that says the virus is the pedophilia elite and the solution then is to tear them down by force. Same mindset. It's really an export of sovereignty. And we never ask why, even if they do exist, okay, the big C conspiracy, what gives them power? We do. It's not like they have bigger muscles than we do. It's not that they have superpowers. It's their, our acquiescence to it. And why do we acquiesce? That's the question to ask. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Divine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. And now back to the show. It reminds me of any war on blank has injured those perpetrating the war more than those who are, you know, the actual originators of yeah. the crime. Isn't the, the leading cause of death in the military suicide right now? It is. Yeah. And the war on drugs, you know, what did that do for drugs, right? Made it worse. Brought the spotlight on it. You know, war on terror, right? Who's, who's gotten injured more? You know, we have. It's weakened us. And if you become to rely on other people to keep you safe, then you just weaken yourself and you weaken your mind. Ultimately, it comes down to who do you trust? And I lost my trust in the mainstream authorities and their systems of knowledge production a long time ago because of the story I just told you. Because I've experienced things in my life that the knowledge authorities, for example, institutional science, say are nonsense. And I'm like, okay, should I believe you or my own lying eyes? You know, like I experienced that. And you have categorically removed it from reality. So, so I know, like this is comes down to my personal experience. You know, I know that the picture of what's real and possible that we are handed is woefully limited. And that predisposes me to, to listen a lot more to the dissidents and the critics and the, and the heretics than I otherwise would if I were just limited to the news. I'm reading uh, Michael Pollan's book right now and how to change your mind about psychedelics and, you know, just smiling at the story about how the, the Catholic church this, and the Spanish side really just, they were the first ones to outlaw psychedelics, right? Because they saw how they were being used by the Aztecs and they're like, oh my God, these guys are having a direct God experience. That's not going to happen under our watch. Then they kind of sprouted again in the sixties, fifties and sixties. And then, you know, the U.S. government said, oh no, probably you know, some forces in there said, oh, this, this is dangerous, right? Because look at the movement of the 60s and the counterculture. And this is like a threat. Yeah. And in a sense, they were right. You know, it was a threat uh, to society as we know it. Like, that's what they said back in those days. If we allow these to spread, it'll end society as we know it. And so their answer was to demonize them and you know, roll them up into the war on drugs and make people think to this day, you know, you know, I've been very open. Like I've got a podcast this afternoon with two folks who are, are healing vets, like with a snap of a finger over a weekend. Amazing. Doing Ibogaine and 5-LEO-DMT. And I went down to experience it. And it was a beautiful experience. It wasn't my first, but it, I for really literally up until about the last three months, Charles, I wouldn't speak of 
my psychedelic experiences. <laughs> I came out like 20 years ago, but, but yeah. Yeah. Because I still had that kind of, I don't know, cultural kind of like stigma. Man, we got to stop playing it safe, Mark. I know, right? I, do. I mean, if you're going to be a warrior, you know, we got to stop playing it safe. We do. To answer the earlier question, how do the elites govern when they don't have actual superpowers? They govern through not so much everybody's agreement with them, but through the perception that everybody agrees with them. Right. By controlling the narrative. It's like the emperor's new clothes. It's like, gosh, the emperor looks naked, but everybody else is acting as if he's not naked. So maybe I'm a fool, but everybody's thinking that. Right. And that's why it's so important now to like come out, whether it's psychedelics or paranormal experiences or in the health arena, childbirth, like all of the whistleblowers, all of the dissidents, like this is the time to be brave. Yeah. And my big kind of turning point was all the um, censorship. I mean, maybe it existed and I just didn't know about it, but holy crap, you know, suddenly we have like major censorship going on and being pressured by the elites or by the government or whatever. I never thought I'd live to see the day, you know, where I'd be on a podcast and I would deliberately avoid saying the V word because some, you know, algorithm is going to, you know, go through there and flag it. I'm like, gosh, I mean, am I in Soviet Russia here? Like, and how instinctive it was to be careful about what I say because Big Brother is watching. That really threw me for a loop. And I guess the fact check would be for everyone listening is if things were dramatically better as a result of that censorship, as a result of the government and all their policies, then then I'd back down and be like, okay, I was wrong. But I don't see that, right? I don't see any evidence of that. I see things getting worse. I see things breaking down. At the same time, and we can kind of pivot here, I also see a beautiful, a more beautiful world on the other side of the chaos, right? And the other side of this. And, I, and we see that with the sproutings of blockchain and, and the promise of Bitcoin and the growing consciousness and psychedelics coming back into the lexicon, into the experience of, of the ordinary citizens and even the legalization of that. And many other data points, which are largely on the fringes, or certainly were just even a few years ago, are now becoming more kind of accepted. I'm also very positive, actually, about the way things are going on the surface things look worse and worse, but underneath there's a huge seismic shift happening in consciousness. You know, I I occasionally sit in uh, medicine ceremonies, psychedelic ceremonies, and like in the last year, so many new people have come to it, like regular people, you know? I mean, these aren't like hippies. These are like, I mean, yeah, ex-military or like normal, like, you know, corporate people, like, and not to say that psychedelics automatically enlighten you or even make you into a better person. Like I've, in the psychedelic space, definitely come across, you know, fairly psychopathic people. There's this kind of saying, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. There are people, many people who have no business doing psychedelics until they have many years of therapy under their belt because their ego structures are not fully formed yet. And so this is where you get the God complexes and, you know, psychic shifts and breaks. And so this is kind of like a a little warning footnote for folks. Don't just jump into a psychedelic ceremony, right? If you're not emotionally, mentally stable, there could be challenges. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've also seen people who were, gave every indication of being pretty darn unstable have their- Have great healing. I just, yeah. So I know, this is a conundrum. Even like the psychedelics is just one aspect of this shift in the core of our culture. Like another indication is, I don't know if you've noticed this, but in the last few years, despite the vitriol and venom online, People seem to be getting kinder and more considerate in person. You know, even like at TSA going to the airport. I mean, yeah, sometimes people are having a bad day and stuff, but in general, 
it seems like people are less identified with their roles in the prison experiment where, you know, the TSA person's a dickhead just because they have this petty power. It doesn't happen as much anymore. But people are less identified with their roles and therefore more able to be in their humanity with each other. And it's a subtle shift, but I'm curious whether you and your listeners have, have noticed. I have noticed that, but I probably wouldn't have identified it until you brought that up. You could just say, well, that's because everyone got stuck inside in the pandemic and, you know, it caused them to do some self-reflection. It predated the pandemic, though. When my uh, eldest son was in high school, I um, sat down with him and his brother and we watched The Breakfast Club. Afterwards, I'm like, so how'd you like it? You know, isn't that just like it, you know, high school? He's like, no, dad, you know, what century are you from? <laughs> don't like that anymore. It's like, today, if somebody's bullying another kid, they'll be ostracized. There's hardly any bullying in my school. And he was not going to any elite kind of school. He was, he was going to like a below average public high school. He's like, yeah, bullying is not cool. Whereas in my day, you almost had to lord it over the weird kids in order to be popular. And it had changed to, if you do that, you won't be popular. There's still a lot of online bullying. I don't know. Maybe um, I've got rose-colored glasses on, but in person, it seems like it has changed. Yeah, it's interesting how to, you know, how to reconcile some of these you know, polarities. So we have, we have people kind of addicted to the, the hyper-arousal of technology and immersing themselves for hours a day, even if it's just their iPhone or, or video games or whatnot. Well, at the same time, they're becoming nicer and more inclusive more collaborative. And actually, my grandkids are great examples of how most of their learning has come from Minecraft and Fortnite and building things in worlds that you and I have never got to experience. Maybe part of it is, you know, like when we're cruel to somebody, when we're mean, when we're inconsiderate, usually it's because we're not seeing them as a full human being. We're seeing a projection, a judgment, an image of the real thing. Well, when we're online, then what we're presented with is images of people. We're not actually interacting with the flesh and blood from the body. Right. You're seeing an avatar, a representation. Yeah, it's an avatar. You know, it's a um, profile name. You know, it's like some anonymous username on Twitter. Like the embodied experience is not the experience of dealing, of interacting with a full human being. So I think that makes it a lot easier to humanize those people. And so, so it like, it gives vent to like all of these shadows. Yeah. The other thing that's coming, crossing my mind right now, and this might be because I live in California, but I think it's more of a global conscious thing is that a lot of parents have kind of given up this notion of, you know, you have to control every aspect of your child's life and given up the kind of the, the parental bullying in terms of the hardcore discipline being the right way. Kids these days are growing up with more autonomy, with more freedom to explore and with less childhood trauma, and therefore they have more self-respect, and so they're not likely to judge and to project those negative things that you and I experienced. Yeah, I think in some ways maybe, but in other ways, children are subject to even more control than ever. You can do almost anything you want online, but say, how many 10-year-olds do you see unsupervised in public space? When I was a kid, like we would roam a mile from home, go swimming in the creek, like start a little campfire up on the abandoned quarry, you know. That goes back to the conundrum that we're talking about, right? So yeah, the great outdoors seems to be off limit to kids. So they found their great outdoors in the metaverse or in the, you know. A simulation of the real thing, which is bounded and ultimately controlled. And it gives you a substitute for real adventure, but it never 
tests your limits in the same way that physical experience does, like walking barefoot over gravel. Like that never happens. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Divine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. And now back to the show. Let's continue this thread around the positive view of the future. Uh, what's your view on kind of blockchain and Bitcoin? I'd love to hear your perspectives on that, both philosophically and also the impact it'll have on the economy. Well, if one thing that it's done is it has exposed the nature of money as being a convention, as being an agreement, and not just a fact of reality. Because if you can make different money, then you could also change the money that we have by simply changing our agreements around it. It suggests a sovereignty that we didn't know that we had, and thereby makes it all the more intolerable that we are not exercising that sovereignty, that we have surrendered it to an inhuman, out-of-control system administered by unaccountable private interests, such as the central banks. Like That's one effect that it's had. Also, like blockchain more generally and and other, you know, expressions of cryptography, they open up all kinds of new domains for decentralized governance, for direct democracy, for other ways besides centralized institutions to make collective decisions and to coordinate our creativity and labor. And in that regard, like the crypto revolution is just in its infancy. Now it kind of got hijacked by speculative greed. And now, you know, we're seeing all that shake out, which I think ultimately will be a good thing. Yeah, I agree. On the other side of that, once we get some sensible regulation and, you know, all the crackpot stuff gets flushed out of the system. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's hard to say, you know, the regulation could just be a way to tame it and make it yet another creature of the centralized institutions. I don't know. I'm not sure if either of us have enough knowledge to really drill down into that issue, but it is a, a caution. Yeah. It's here to stay, though. I mean, I mean, we're recording this podcast at at one of the bottoms, you know, where where FUD is starting to take over, and people, you know, some of the bigger crypto investment funds and custodial institutions are struggling and laying off, like Coinbase and whatnot, you know. And the doomsayers are saying, "See, I told you, you know, it just took a little bit longer than I thought, but you know, Bitcoin is has no value whatsoever." That's the, like the Bank of England guy saying, "Bitcoin has zero value whatsoever." So it's an interesting time, and so people are questioning. I'll share my view. I think Bitcoin will be this, the digital gold of the future. It's, it's a massively valuable store of value and all the, the models, you know, that I've been privy to in terms of valuation put Bitcoin valuation right now at, you know, between 60 and 100 something thousand. So it's greatly undervalued. It's a phenomenal buying opportunity for investors. And, you know, we, when we look at it with a long view set of glasses on, you know, Bitcoin could be kind of the reserve currency of the world. It could be. You know, eight, 10 years. A million dollars per Bitcoin. It could be, right? You know, or could, you know, something disastrous could happen to it. And it could 
But my view is that it will survive. It's, the strength is in that decentralization and the adoption, right? And it can't be shut down. Like China tried that. It can't be shut down unless the entire internet goes down. And then by then, you know, there'll be satellite-based internet that'll find a way. Because it's not controlled by anybody or any one thing. Yeah. It really has a mind of its own almost. Yeah. Again, you know, there's a more complicated conversation to be had there. I mean, China did kind of shut it down in China, you know. Well, that's what they say, but all the miners have come back online. In China? Yeah. Just in the past few weeks. I mean, if you're facing like, say, you know, years of imprisonment, are you going to run a server farm? <laughs> I know. You know, are you going to take that risk? I don't know how they do. Yeah, they're doing it with through anonymous and masking and everything. So they are taking a huge risk. Right. I think maybe China just wanted to get their arms around it and get their you know, digital wand, you know, enough kind of legs. Then, then they'll, you know, once other countries start to adopt it, they will have to. I'll just ask you a question. You mentioned that the purpose of your podcast is to help people regain their sovereignty. What is the core of that in your mind? So sovereignty to me comes with taking control back of of how we train our minds and that how we train our minds then you know will dictate everything else and i believe the body is even expression of the mind and so if we want absolute health then train your mind for absolute health if you want longevity you want to live to 150 train your mind to live to 150 you know my evidence are the yogis who like neither babaji or you know others who train them train their minds to keep their bodies alive for a very long time again western science would just poo poo this and I can't like march a yogi into my uh, podcast studio and, you know, who's hundreds of years old, but I've read enough accounts and I've had enough experience of my own around the capacity of the mind to dictate the body that um, I personally believe this. And I believe that the more an individual evolves, trains their mind and evolves their consciousness, the less separation they feel, the more inclusive they become until ultimately they experience the, the unity consciousness. And I believe that that unity consciousness is not reserved for a few enlightened beings, but is the birthright of all humans. And so you could say my, one of my, beyond bringing people autonomy and sovereignty, is to democratize enlightenment to, and to demystify it and to scale it. And my mission is to train and inspire 100 million to come to this path of, you know, what I consider to be a Western path or a modern path toward what, what I just described which requires daily activities around self-mastery in combination with you know, a service mindset and doing things that benefit other human beings, self-mastery and service. How does that resonate with you? I thought a bit about longevity, you know, and a paradox occurred to me. To a certain point, yeah, like you can take care of yourself and, you know, be healthier and live longer. But at some point, the things you have to do to ex achieve extraordinary longevity means letting go of the motives that, that motivated you to seek longevity in the first place, which is all about me. As long as it's all about me, you're going to be in a certain sense, like tight and controlled and not really fully in the flow of life. And to open up to the full flow of vitality, you have to make it not all about yourself, as you were saying, to make it about service. And at that point, maybe you can then through that achieve extraordinary longevity, but you won't even care anymore. You won't care. That's right. I agree with that. So the longevity is, is kind of a fun aim really for optimal health, lifespan as opposed to, or health span as opposed to lifespan is one way of looking at it. And I also think that, um, the accounts of those who've done it, you know, and I've seen accounts from Qigong martial arts as well as yoga of individuals who've lived for more than, well, more than a hundred years. They literally have to 
segregate themselves from society because it's just too unhealthy and negative and toxic. But there might be a point in the future where, where that's not true, right? Where you're gaining energy in your relationships and in, in being a part of culture, you know? Yeah. One of the concepts I, I, I've been working with a bit, it's actually in the epilogue of my, from the book that's coming out, is building a parallel society. You know, it's, it's kind of drawing off uh, Buckminster Fuller's famous quote, you don't change things by fighting the existing reality, but by you know, build a new model that makes the old one obsolete. And so in many, many areas, you mentioned, you know, like Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, that's like a parallel financial system. Holistic health modalities, that's a parallel healthcare system. We're doing like all kinds of radical schooling experiments. You know, that's a parallel educational system. We're growing more of our own food, parallel agricultural system. Like we're, we're creating all of these institutions, but also the consciousness around them and the values embedded in them are also parallel. They're different from the mainstream. And so it could very well be, as you say, that when we immerse ourselves in that parallel society, no longer is it a source of pollution and something we have to resist because it's always trying to tear us down from our our sovereignty and from our positivity. It's actually the opposite. It's actually supportive. I think that's awesome. And I love that. But parallel kind of uh, assumes that they're at an equal level, you know, operating side by side, whereas I think that they're vertical in nature in that this new these new systems are actually operating at a higher level of vibrational quality or consciousness, you know, largely invisible to someone operating at the original level. Maybe not invisible, but, you know, they're just not able to really understand it or, or go there. Let's talk about the coronation and what's it about and where are we at with it? At the beginning of the pandemic, I wrote an essay called The Coronation, more of a philosophical take on things and a, a social analysis. Like I wrote a lot about mob morality and the mentality of totalitarianism. And just anyway, I wrote a series of essays on various aspects of the pandemic and now publishing a book called also The Coronation that brings all these essays together and with some new material that kind of weaves them together. So it's kind of like a, um, it kind of maps the trajectory of the pandemic, both as a social phenomenon, but also like for myself in the material that weaves it together. I'm talking about like my periods of despair and despondency and paralysis and my self-doubt, you know, the times where I'm like, maybe everything I've been saying is wrong. How do I know that what I believe is true? And just going through all of that inner journey that many people went through a version of during the pandemic, you know? So that's really what the book is about. And the reason that I'm putting it out, it's like everyone wants to move on and that's good. But have we really learned from the experience? Have we really made sense of it all? Or are we just rushing headlong into the future with unlearned lessons that will then be repeated? So that's why I, I am putting quite a lot of energy into the book. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think it's really important because things are moving so fast that there is less and less reflection happening, both individually and culturally. And I think, you know, if you wanted to take a positive look at it and in retrospective look, like this is a pivotal moment. It caused you know, a great pause. It, it was helpful for the environment. It caused people to stop and go within. It re reshaped the global economy in, I think, a more resilient way, or it is in the process of doing that. And also the definition of what it means to be human. The next pivotal moment will be when artificial intelligence gains sentience, if, if that's possible. The reason I titled it the coronation is because a coronation is, what the word means is a crown. So a coronation is an initiation into sovereignty. 
which means that choices that had been unconscious that we didn't know we were making now become conscious. So it's not that the pandemic has saved us from a technocratic totalitarian future. It's that it showed us where we've been going. So now we can choose it consciously or choose something else. And it's my hope that we do choose something else. And that's what I work for. Awesome. When do you intend to have this published? It's with Chelsea Green Publishing. comes out July 28th. And so, Charles, where do uh, people follow you, learn more? You know, what, What's the social handles and whatnot? The best place is Substack. I publish on charleseisenstein.substack.com. I mean, I have a website also, charleseisenstein.org, but the new stuff is all on Substack. Thanks so much for your time today, Charles. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Fascinating conversation. I really appreciate it. And uh, uh-huh. let's try to stay in touch somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Take care now. Bye-bye. Take care. Yeah. Wow, that was a fascinating interview with Charles Eisenstein. We talk about philosophy, philosophy of Bitcoin blockchain, virtual reality. We talk about the emerging economy, talk about spirituality and yoga. Fascinating stuff. You can find the show notes, markdevine.com, a video of the show at our YouTube channel, markdevine.com slash YouTube. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Mark Divine and at Real Mark Divine, Instagram, Facebook, and also my LinkedIn account. If you're not on my newsletter uh, distro list, then consider subscribing at markdivine.com so you can get the Divine Inspiration newsletter every Tuesday where I have a digest of the um, week's podcast episode or show episode, as well as my blog and um, habits and other things that I'm reading that I think would be valuable. Especially shout out to my amazing team, Jeff Haskell and Jason Sanderson and Jeff Torres and Melinda Hershey, who help us produce this show and finding incredible guests like Charles to bring to your ears every week. I appreciate reviews for the show. are very uh, helpful to bring the show credibility, to help grow the audience and have other people find it. So if you haven't rated or reviewed it, please consider doing so at Apple or wherever you listen. And as we discuss on this show, the world's changing very fast. We have like a parallel universe that's growing up in alongside in almost a, a completely different uh, vibrational level out of view of a lot of people in the mainstream media, but it's happening. It's happening fast. The economy's changing. Our new medical kind of genres are beginning to be formed or growing and new educational experiments. All sorts of really cool things are happening and they're gaining more widespread adoption. At the same time, you know, there's a lot of chaos and anxiety and stress and burnout, and it's up to us to do our best to maintain optimal health and a, a strong positive mindset and to train ourselves to be the change we want to see in the world. So thank you for being part of that and doing the work and for supporting the show. Until next time, stay focused and believe in a more beautiful world. Hooyah. <laughs>